It is the single most important thing in history. Christ was crucified, but he came out of the grave. Risen. Then he arose. It's all true. It's all true. I have previously lived a life of sin, drugs, alcohol, everything in between. There's no way I could have stopped drinking. Now that Jesus has come, died, and resurrected, everything changes. I have a new life. New life. He's made my life new. Identity in Jesus Christ. He rose me also. Rescued me from hell. I came back to life. Restored to right relationship with God. The number one problem was death, but now... He conquered every human affliction. They came out on the other side. Changed radically. Power and motivation. I don't have those addictions. No, I'm not perfect. I fall often, but I'm sure enough living a much better life than I was. I had a lifetime of learning it's not about me, it's about him. I can love my neighbors. New mercies are fresh every morning. Just as Jesus Christ has loved and forgiven me. There's life eternal. I've experienced a life I never thought I'd experience. Day to day and on a daily basis, it just hasn't gone old. The possibilities are endless. I have freedom from slavery to alcohol. I have freedom from slavery to sin. And what could be more exciting? I hold on to that every day. And I have a new life, a joyous life, to do what God wants me to do and to tell other people the great news that Jesus offers. People just feel that life is not worth living. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then a life lived with hope. Hope. In this, I've experienced that hope. My view of life is completely different. There's nothing he can't overcome in my life. Lots of movie stars here at New City. <laughs> amen, amen. Well, really, we're here not to celebrate ourselves, not to celebrate anything that we've done, we're here to celebrate what Jesus has done in defeating death. Amen. And if Jesus really did rose, rise from the dead, then sin has been defeated, death has been defeated, and there is real hope for real people living in a really broken world. I want to read the story of the resurrection to you, and then I want to talk to you for a few minutes about hope. We've been going through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and so we're going to dive into to that, uh, that story of the resurrection when we come into the scene, Jesus is at the end of his life on the cross, and it says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And in Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, he came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he had bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen 
And then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph, were watching where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. On the right side, they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, as the risen Lord, your spirit would be present with us today and that we might see the resurrection afresh. For those of us that are followers of you, that have our faith in you, would you encourage us this morning? And for those that are exploring spirituality, they're exploring Christianity, might you bring them to a new understanding of who you are and what you've done for them. And all God's people said, You know, I don't like to be negative, but at the same time, I find that it's really hard to have real hope in a real world. A lot of people, when I talk to them about the lack of hopefulness, they say, well, you just got to stay positive. (laughs) You got to stay positive. But I find in order to stay positive, I've got to ignore the world as it really is. I was on the internet this week, and I noticed that between where our church normally meets on Pembroke Road and Arts Park, if you were to take a five-minute drive... In 2016, 13 people died of overdose between where our church meets and Arts Park. Stay positive. It's not enough. Staying positive is not enough because you have to dismiss the world as it really is in order to be hopeful. And even trying to stay positive, it's hard to even do that because messages of hopelessness are always coming at you. See, we we have to try to stay positive because we live in a world that's full of hopelessness. We need a real hope that can deal with really broken people in a really broken world. We need a hope that doesn't come from inside us, but a hope that comes to us. We need a hope that comes to us. One of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called Snap Judgment. And my all-time favorite story on Snap Judgment is just one called The Orange. And in, the po- and in that particular podcast, there's a story uh, about a man who was sent to Auschwitz, the prison camp where many Jews died. And some of you probably have relatives that were there. And Auschwitz was a hopeless place. Not only was it hopeless, but it was colorless. Uh, all the people there were, were pale white because they got no sun. And, and the guards wore black and the sky was gray, and the soup that they had to eat every day was just made with potatoes, and it was gray. No color, hopelessness. But one day, the man who the story was about was out looking for newspaper. He looked for newspaper so that he could stuff it in his shoes and keep himself warm and try and take care of himself. And and while he was out, he saw something that he thought was newspaper. And he went over to it, and he picked it up, And it wasn't a newspaper at all. He didn't understand how it got there. He didn't know where it came from. But right there in the middle of Auschwitz was an orange. 
quickly put it in his pocket because he knew someone would fight him to get it. And he went back to his bunk room and he stuck it in the wall in a little spot that he had kept things, uh, kept things secret from other people. And he waited till that night. And while he was laying in bed, he reached over and he grabbed it out of the wall and he held it. And he moved it back and forth in his hands and he, he scratched it so he could smell the citrus smell. And all of a sudden, there in the middle of Auschwitz, hope. Hope. He put it back into the wall and he decided, I'm not going to eat it until there's a particularly hopeless day. And you didn't have to wait long in Auschwitz for a day to feel hopeless. A few days later, there was, a, a, there was um, I don't know the correct word, and I want to be careful with the kids, but half the people didn't make it. Half the people didn't make it. And he went back to his room that night, and he got all his bunkmates, and they gathered in a circle, and he pulled out the orange. And no one said a word. They all just stared at the orange. And they passed it around, and each one held it, smelled it, and took it in. For a moment, hope. Hope. They opened the orange up and they, and they shared the squares. And as they tasted and smelled and took it in, hope. Hope. Just like they stood around and unpacked the orange and took it in, I, I want to look at the resurrection of Jesus. In a world of hopelessness, the resurrection of Jesus is hope. The resurrection of Jesus is hope that comes to us from the outside. That's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on us staying positive. It comes to us in the world as the world really is and as we really are as broken people. Hope in the resurrection. First, the hope of the resurrection is reasonable. Many people think that the resurrection is unbelievable and then therefore it's not about hope. It's actually a hoax. It's not true. But I want to tell you that it is true, and Jesus did really rise from the dead in a real time, in a real place, in real history. It wasn't any different for the, for the Jews in the, at that day. They had just as hard of a time believing that it really happened. We have a hard time because of scientific reasons. They had a very hard time because of philosophical reasons. They didn't believe in one particular person resurrecting from the dead. And so even though Jesus had said, I'll die and three days later I'll rise, when Jesus is put in the tomb, they are clueless because it was unbelievable to them as well. Still, many believe this is a hoax. It, it's unbelievable. And so I hear a lot of arguments that say, well, what really happened is that Jesus came out of the tomb, but that's because he never really died. He never really died. They thought he was dead when he was on the cross, and they put him in the tomb, but he didn't die. But to me, that's unreasonable. To me, that's unbelievable because Jesus was so beaten and bruised before he even went to the cross that he couldn't carry his cross. When he's first arrested, he's put, they put a blanket over him and he can't see and he's beaten. So he has no way to dodge. He has no way to cover himself because he doesn't know the blows are coming. He's scourged and I won't go into that, but people often died from just the scourging. Then a crown of thorns is put on his head and he's told to carry his cross and he can't do it. Someone carries the cross for him, and he's executed for six hours. 
And then multiple witnesses say that he has died, both Romans and Jews. They've confirmed his death. But yet some people say he wasn't dead. And after all that that he went through, somehow he rose up out of the tomb because he was still alive. That's what they say. He was still alive, and he was able to push that huge stone out of the way after he'd been beaten so badly. That's unreasonable. Jesus really did die on the cross. Some say, though, that the resurrection itself is made up by the disciples. Jesus really did die. He just didn't rise. The disciples made some sort of political power play in order to gain influence and gain followers. And they wrote the New Testament in order to kind of support their beliefs. But the problem is the disciples didn't gain any power from speaking about the resurrection. They lost power. In fact, many of them were executed themselves for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. They lost not only power, but their lives. Why would they make up the resurrection? And to the claim of them writing the New Testament so that they could fabricate the story, thousands of people were already Christians before a page of the New Testament was ever written. Still, some say there is a conspiracy. There's a conspiracy the disciples came up with. But a conspiracy would be impossible. I watched a video this week, and it said the number one thing you need in a conspiracy is a small group of conspirators. The more conspirators, the less likely the conspiracy is able to go forward. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to Peter, and then to the 12, and then to 500 people at once. That's not a good formula for a conspiracy. It's impossible that all 500 of those people were delusional or hallucinating at the same time. Jesus really appeared to real people. In fact, it's kind of crazy that the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. You see, this particular time in the world, women were extremely oppressed. Their testimony was not valid in court. They couldn't be witnesses in a court of law. And so if this was the apostles trying to sell us a bill of goods, they wouldn't have said that a woman saw it. They would have picked someone who had power and influence. Just like when you watch TV, you know, Tony here doesn't endorse any products. Shaquille O'Neal does. Because you see Shaquille O'Neal, I love Tony, no offense, but Shaquille O'Neal is trying to sell you something. It doesn't make sense to, do, to give the testimony to someone who doesn't have power and influence unless it's true, unless they really were the first witnesses to the resurrection, and if Jesus views women very differently than the culture does. There were many messianic movements at this time. Before Jesus and after Jesus, people claimed to be the Messiah, and they would stir up a revolution, but as soon as the person leading the messianic movement died, so did the movement. And yet here you and I are, 2,000 years later, still part of the movement of Jesus the Messiah. The church. See, resurrection hope is hard to believe, but it is reasonable. It's not that Christians close their eyes and go, we believe in blind faith. No, there are reasonable explanations to show that the resurrection of Christ really happened. And therefore, if you're here today and you believe Jesus is a good teacher, you got to go further than that. Jesus said he was more than a good teacher because he rose from the dead. 
He did defeat death. He did defeat sin. The story is true. Jesus is the Son of God. He accomplished what he said he would accomplish through his death and resurrection. And what he accomplished was the greatest rescue in the history of the world. Resurrection hope is about rescue. All of mankind is under the curse of sin. We're under the curse of sin's power. And that's why death enters into the world. That's why our bodies decay. That's why we see so much destruction and hopelessness because sin has power in the world. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. It's saying, I want to do life without the giver of life. I want to live in the creation apart from relationship with the creator. It's living life without God as your reference point. For those of you that know the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is love the Lord, your, or it's a, someone help me, I drew a blank. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, but also the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. I went over that with my kids and that's why it's in my head. How many of us can say that we live with God as our reference point, having no other gods before him 24-7, 365? Most of us can't even say we do that daily. We live with power or prestige or influence or pleasure as our God. We worship those things. We build our lives around our own personal success without any sense of resting in God and using him as our reference point. We trust other things. And because of that, we are in debt to God. He created us to live in relationship with him. And because we've broken relationship with him, we owe him a debt. Not only are we under sin's power, but we're under sin's penalty. And the penalty is separation from God. And that is why we are so hopeless. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we were without God and without hope in this world. Without God and without hope in this world. God wasn't the person who messed up the world. We were. I go down to Parrot Coffee once a week, and one of my friends sits outside there, and we have a great conversation every time, and he, he doesn't believe in God, and we have some great conversations about that. But when I walk up, he always says to me, Pastor, how's God? And I say, well, God is good. God is good all the time, yeah. And he goes, I don't know. I don't know. The world is a pretty messed up place. And I say, yeah, but do you know why it's messed up? It, it's not because God is absent. It's because we've said no to God. We've told God we don't need him. We're going to do life without the giver of life. We're going to live in his creation without the need of the creator. And that's why life has gone so haywire. We've said, God, we don't need you. And therefore, we are separated from him, from his presence and from his plan. And we are in need of a rescue. Even though we have rebelled against God, God still loves us and moves to rescue us. Jesus rescues by ransoming us with his life. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says that he gives his life as a ransom for many. And what that means is Jesus is your stand-in. Tom Cruise had a stand-in for Mission Impossible, and they interviewed the guy who was the stand-in, and they said, isn't it kind of glorious? Isn't it kind of fun to be the stand-in for Tom Cruise? And he said, no, it's awful. <laughs> it's, 
it's awful because I have to go and just stand there wherever Tom's supposed to stand while he's getting ready in his RV. And if it's hot, I'm in the middle of the heat. If it's raining, I just have to stand there. It is a miserable job being a stand-in. Jesus was our stand-in receiving the penalty of sin from God. What we deserve, the place that we were supposed to be, Jesus went for us. He was put on the cross and punished in our place. But through his death, we are freed. We are rescued. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus and said, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity or sin of us all. Jesus rescues you if your faith is in him because he died in your place. He was your stand-in, and therefore you have hope. But Jesus also rescues us from a separation to God. He rescues us from separation to God. In Mark 15, the passage we read, it says that when Christ died, the curtain was torn in two. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelled. But no one could just walk in and be with God. God was too holy and man was too sinful. In fact, only one person, one time a year, could walk into the room where God's presence dwelt. After going through many rituals to cleanse themselves and purify themselves, yet when Jesus dies supernaturally, the curtain rips in two, signifying that sinners through Christ are now welcome into the presence of God. I office out of my home. And if I step out of my office for just a minute and open that door just a little bit and step over to the pantry to get a snack, when I turn around, there are children in my office just staring at me, particularly my one-year-old. She gets in, I don't know how she gets in there, but she, she slides right in. And then when I walk back in, she's just standing there and she goes, hi. Because the door is open, she now has access. Because the curtain has been ripped in two, you and I now have 24-7, 365 access to God. In Hebrews, it says that we can approach the throne of grace to receive mercy anytime we need it. Anytime we need it. And if you're like me, I need grace and mercy 24-7, 365. But because Jesus has died in your place, you are welcome into the presence of God. No longer scared of him, but looking to him as father. Looking to him as father. David Beckham, the great soccer player, used to play soccer in his backyard with his kids and when they were a little bit little. And he has three boys. And when they'd go out there, they'd all pretend to be a famous soccer player. And he'd ask the oldest, who are you going to pretend to be? And the oldest would say, I'm going to be Zinedine Zidane, which is a famous soccer player. He'd say to the middle one, who are you going to be? And he'd say, I am Ronaldinho. And then they'd look at the little tiny guy, the littlest one, and they'd say, who are you going to be? And he would say, I am David Beckham. And what they began to realize was that this little boy knew of a great soccer player named David Beckham, but he did not realize that soccer player was his father. 
The great God of the universe is now your father. Amen. You have access to him 24-7 because Christ has rescued you and died in your place. Some of you have had bad relationships with your dad. God is not that kind of father. God always loves everything he does towards you is through his love because he is the perfect father. When Jesus rises from the dead, it proves that the rescue has really happened. It's true. Jesus has accomplished our ransom. He has accomplished bringing us to God, breaking down the separation. And that means that there's resurrection hope for the real you. Not the pretend you that you pretend to be. Not the one with secrets where you, you front with people and you have certain things that you keep in your life and you don't tell. Resurrection hope is for the real you. It's for the real person in there. Because hope, the hope of the resurrection doesn't come from inside you. It comes to you because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Your debt has been fully paid. Your debt for sin has been fully paid to God. The door of access is open to you. Whenever you need mercy, whenever you're in a time of weakness, you can go to God as your father because there's hope for the real you. Death has been defeated. The resurrection proves that Jesus won. Jesus is the victor over death, but he'd make an awful superhero. And here's why. A good superhero keeps the story going for a long time. They seem to defeat the villain, but then the villain comes back and they have to fight him over and over and over again. But when Jesus rises from the grave, he kills death. And death will never come back to life. Hallelujah. Jesus wins. He's victorious. And this is the good news that brings us hope this morning. The gospel or the good news is not spiritual advice about how to live a better life. It's not turning over a new leaf. It is bringing dead people to life. It is new life in this life. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that in Christ, you are a new creation. And he doesn't even say that. I think he just says new creation. In Christ, all things new. Like someone said in the video, he rose me. The power that accomplished the resurrection and Jesus coming back to life is now at work in you so that God is making you new from the inside out. You didn't get better, you got resurrected. Hallelujah, come on. And he's making the real you new. The real you, not the one that hides, not the one that's full of shame. He knows all that. And his resurrection power is still working in you. He's making the real you new. You get new life in this life and eternal life in the life to come. Our church is called New City Fellowship because at the end of the Bible, the followers of Jesus who have placed faith in him rise from the dead and a new city descends down from heaven. That's kind of our, our best guess at what it looks like. It's a pretty bad guess. But. And forever in that new city, people live face to face with God. He wipes every tear from their eyes. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. There's no more shame. 
There's no more hopelessness. Jesus is at the center of the city. And no lights are needed in that city because Christ in his glory lights the city. Death will not come back to life in this city. All things will be made new. And that resurrection hope is for the real you. That resurrection hope is for you to grab onto today because it deals with the reality of a broken you in a broken world. It's not something you muster up. It's not something you fake. It comes to you for you to hold on to, for you to hold on to for the rest of your life, for you to share with others. See, we believe that our hope is in the risen Jesus. Christ has risen from the dead. And if that is true, then there is hope for each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. As the worship team comes back forward, I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that, uh, well, first of all, we just submit to your power. No one has done what you've done. No one has defeated death. No one has conquered sin. No one has set captives free. But you have. And so we worship you, Jesus, and we follow you, not as someone who has been laid in the tomb and never came out, but as someone who kicked open the door and defeated death forever. Lord, may that give us hope right now, wherever we are at in our lives, whether we are wanting to quit, whether we are wanting to walk away from you, whether we are exploring Christianity for the first time, Lord, might we see afresh the hope of the resurrection. Amen. Let's stand and let our worship team lead us.